Hosea is a stunning, if difficult, prophetic book set within a time of severe political turmoil in 8th century Israel. Kings are dying, alliances are being formed, a showdown with the Assyrian Empire is imminent, and within this historical reality, the people of Israel have become rebellious and unfaithful. They have even included worship of other gods into their normal routines. All of this informs the well-known image of Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful wife, Gomer, and the birth of their kids. Much like his own family, the book of Hosea tells a one-sided love story of a God who, despite all evidence to the contrary, will not give up on his people. Join us as we explore the depth and radical faithfulness of a God who won't let go in the book of Hosea. This is Hosea chapter 1, beginning from the very uh, beginning in verse 1. It says this, the Lord's word that came to Hosea, Beeri's son, in the days of Judah's kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and in the days of Israel's king, Jeroboam, Joash's son. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, marry a prostitute and have children of prostitution, for the people of the land commit great prostitution by deserting the Lord. So Hosea went and took Gomer, Diblaim's daughter, and she became pregnant and bore him a son. The Lord said to him, name him Jezreel, for in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will destroy the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow in Israel in the Jezreel Valley. Gomer became pregnant again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, name her no compassion, because I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel or forgive them, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah. I, the Lord, their God, will save them. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When Gomer finished nursing no compassion, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said, name him not my people, because you are not my people, and I am not your God. The word of God for the people of God. It's a difficult passage. There's a lot of things that are going on here that have caused scholars to ask questions. And I would even say casual readers, perhaps for the first time, engaging this passage saying, what in the world is going on? Eight days ago, Donald Glover uh, hosted Saturday Night Live and released a new single entitled This Is America. Um, at the same time, he also released a video to accompany this single. And over the last eight days, this video has been viewed over 100 million times. This video is causing a lot of conversation and gaining a lot of traction because in this video, Donald Glover and his alter ego, Childish Gambino, are trying to address a lot of difficult issues within the United States of America. Whether he's tackling the race issue, where he, whether he's tackling the issues with police brutality, whether he's tackling issues about how the media is trying to advance us beyond um, looking at real issues, whether he's talking about how the entertainment world is trying to gloss over 
over these real things that demand conversations. What he has done is he has created a video that is causing consternation and, and causing conversation to happen to engage the public in what is going on in the world. And we have seen how many different people are beginning to label this act as prophetic. Now, I know that within this room, we have lots of different uh, political ideologies that are represented here. We have lots of different backgrounds and uh, different experiences, and we might not be all on board with the message that is propagated by this video and by this single. However, in our current political climate and in our current um, moment in time, these are conversations that with or without us are ongoing, and he is attempting to address them in a creative and overt way. One um, Writer, He's actually a Fuller student from Fuller Theological Seminary writing in uh, the magazine Relevant, which take it or leave it. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not so good in my own opinion. He says to say that this is America is prophetic is not the same as saying everything childish Gambino does and says is immaculate. It also doesn't mean that Donald Glover is a Christian, but it means that this piece of art recalls a tradition of frustrated messengers grabbing a society by the collar and trying to shake it away wake by any means necessary. And if you've happened to have seen this video over the last eight days or so, it's, it's, it's almost hypnotizing. It, it sucks you in and you are trying to see what's going on. And there's been many articles that, that call your attention to the things in the background and what have you. There's, there's a lot of, of imagery that's, that's in this, this video that's attempting to create a narrative. And people are saying that in that sense, it's prophetic because it's attempting to address current day issues, much like prophetic sign acts. All throughout the Old Testament, we have the prophets who do really weird things in an attempt to address their audience. Some people would call these, these sign acts as planned or orchestrated public demonstrations where the prophet shows up and does something really weird in front of people to convey a symbolic or a theological message to the populace. Other people would say that these prophetic sign acts are carefully choreographed street theater and also understand the difference of the time. So for Donald Glover, he can put this on a video and get 100 million views on YouTube. And for an ancient Near Eastern prophet, they go to uh, the place where commerce happens in the town and they attempt to do these signs that people see and interpret. For example, Isaiah chapter 20, it says, in the year that Assyria's king Sargon sent his general to Ashdod. Note, this is Assyria who is outside of Israel and Judah, one of the world powers at the time. They're, they're moving and shaking. This King Sargon, he fought against Ashdod and captured it. At that time, the Lord had spoken through Isaiah, Amos's son, saying this, go take off the morning clothes from your waist and remove the shoes from your feet. And Isaiah did this walking naked and barefoot. The Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years, pause, you know, like we think, okay, I'm going to take off my tunic, put my shoes to the side. I'm creating an image here and I don't really know how I feel about it. Um, 
but he walks around town naked and barefoot. And then side note in verse three, uh, just as he has done this for three years, nakedness in the prophetic literature is a pretty common trope. Micah also decides to disrobe in order to demonstrate what might happen. I don't know why I took that stance. The power <laughs> stance decides to disrobe in order to show people what might happen in a uh, war sort of circumstance. Okay, it, it continues here and you'll see this. Uh, he did this for three years as a sign and an omen against Egypt and Cush. So will the kings of Assyria lead the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, both young and old, naked and barefoot with buttocks bared, humiliating Egypt. Interesting conversation in the car with my son the other day. Um, had something to do with butts and we ended up talking about buttockses. I should have prepped that a bit more, but that's all, that's, that's all, we'll move on. Um, they will be shattered and shamed because of Cush, their hope, and because of Egypt, their glory. Uh, verse six, on that day, those who live on this coast will say, look at those in whom we had hoped. This is the whole point. For the Israelites at the time, they were looking to Egypt and Cush and these other nations to help them ward off an Assyrian attack. But Isaiah is roaming the streets naked for three years saying, it's not gonna be good for Egypt or Cush. I am naked, and that's what it'll be like for them. Buttocks bared. That, that's the point. So Israelites, do not put your hope in Egypt or, or Cush. Wait for God to do something for you. The question then becomes for Isaiah's audience, how will we escape if we don't have these allies and they're not understanding the point? It gets weirder, I think, in Jeremiah 13. The Lord proclaimed to me, go and buy a linen undergarment. Wear it for a while without washing it. That's kind of strange, but it's going to go a little bit farther. So I bought a linen undergarment, he says, as the Lord told me, and I put it on. Then the Lord spoke to me again. Take the undergarment that you are wearing and go at once to the Euphrates, to this uh, river, and put it under a rock. So I went and buried it at the Euphrates as the Lord instructed. After a long time, it doesn't tell us how long, but after a long time, the Lord said to me, hey, remember the undergarment? Return to the Euphrates and dig up the undergarment that I commanded you to bury there. So I went to the Euphrates and I dug up the linen undergarment from that place and I had buried it, but it was ruined and good for nothing. Then the Lord's word came to me. The Lord proclaims in the same way, I will ruin the brazen pride of Judah and Jerusalem. Instead of listening to me, this wicked people uh, will follow their own willful hearts and pursue other gods. They're worshiping and serving them. They will become like this linen garment, good for nothing. This is a prophetic sign act. This is an orchestrated demonstration to, to show the people that, that Judah is far gone here just like that dirty pair of underwear. You are good for nothing. Ezekiel 5. This is after Ezekiel has taken a couple of bricks and drawn a model of the city of Jerusalem, and he's laid on his side for 390 days, representing the guilt of Israel, and he's laid on his other side for 40 days, I believe, representing the guilt of Judah. That's normal, right? He continues on. You, human one, take a sharp sword, use it like a razor, and shave your head and your beard. Then use scales to divide the hair. So just picture the scene. You've got weirdo Ezekiel who's been laying on his side for 400 and some days, and then he starts trimming his beard with a huge sword. Kind of cool. 
dangerous, but you know, whatever. And then he starts dividing the hair with the scales that he has, and he's going to do certain things with um, the, the divisions of the hair. At the end of the siege that you have enacted, burn one third of it in the city, strike another third with the sword left and right, then scatter one third to the wind and let loose the sword after it. From that third, take a few strands and hide them in your garment. I'll let you go back and read this and see what's going on here, but he's taking some hair and putting it in his garment. From that hair, take yet another batch and throw it into the fire and burn it. From there, fire will spread to the whole house of Israel. So now the Lord God proclaims, this is the point, you're doing all this to demonstrate something. This is choreographed street theater that people are now seeing. It's not a YouTube video, but it's the prophet who shows up and has been doing a sign in front of people to demonstrate what the word of the Lord is. And in this text, it is, I myself am now against you, says the Lord. Therefore, as surely as I live, this is what the Lord God says. Because you made my sanctuary unclean with all your disgusting practices and detestable things, I myself will shave you. I will not shed a tear. You will have no compassion even from me. This is a hard word from the Lord delivered through his instrument, the prophet. One third of you, he says, will die of plague and waste away by famine among you. One third will fall by the sword all around you. And one third, I will scatter to all the winds, letting loose a sword to pursue them. I've actually um, taken out some texts here that, that speak of um, parents eating children and children eating parents just to, uh, to be alive in this time. This is a hard word in a politically tumultuous time where Israel and Judah has no chance at all. And the prophet is telling this to the people to try to turn them around, to warn them and move them from what they are doing currently. One more example. In Mark chapter 11, this is actually a story that's told in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus shows up at some point in his ministry to cleanse the temple. We know the story well. Perhaps if we've spent any amount of time in church, Jesus shows up and he starts flipping over the table saying, you have turned this house into a den of thieves. You are standing here attempting to make a profit by selling, upcharging people for their sacrificial animals. And Jesus is ticked. And most of the time we see this as Jesus overcome with emotion and responding in the moment to what's happening, much like if we were walking down the street and we see something and we fly into action. Mark's version of this story, however, is ingenious in the sense that Jesus shows up into Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11. It says he enters into the city. This is after people have said Hosanna. They've put down palms. They've led him into the city. He goes inside. He looks around. He surveys the scene. And then he goes back home for a good night's sleep. The next morning, Jesus shows up to do some street theater. He shows up to do a prophetic sign act. He goes into the temple courts and overturns the tables, not in an act of rage that is um, unexpected. This is a calculated, choreographed moment where Jesus is tapping into this prophetic vein and doing something to get the people's attention, but also to teach them what is at stake. And here in Hosea chapter 1, 
we get a prophetic sign act. We get a, um, an acted out version of the message of God by Hosea marrying Gomer. And not only that, Hosea having kids with Gomer and naming them really ridiculous names, but not just funny, ridiculous names, names that no one should ever name their children. And perhaps you have a list of things that people should never name children. These are way worse than those. Claire, of course, as the midwife, has seen a lot of babies being born and heard a lot of ridiculous names, I would assume. But these names, not compassioned, not pitied, might be another translation of that. Not my people. Can you just imagine the dinnertime conversations? Uh, uh, not compassion. Can you pass the falafel? Thank you. N not my people. Don't that. No, put that down. Not my people. You put that down right now. Jezreel, we don't really have a lot of thoughts about that, but we will when we get into it, okay? So Hosea and Gomer and the kids, one scholar says part of the genius of these materials relates to their shock value. This is much like Donald Glover slash Childish Gambino making a video that captures you. But imagine that this is something that captures you and extends on for the life of these children, This is a prophetic sign act that keeps going. However, before we get there, if you are a thoughtful person, you might have questions about what in the world is going on in this passage. Perhaps most notably, why on earth would God ask someone to do this? I want to put that on pause for a moment and just at least let us think about the things that we've seen and heard prophets do. This is in the vein of how prophets um, went about their daily tasks. But even more fundamentally, perhaps scholars have wondered how many women are involved. And we don't get that because we're just looking at chapter one, but it seems as though Gomer is only named in chapter one. There's a poem about a woman in chapter two, and then there's a first person account of Hosea's marriage in chapter three. Scholars would say that these first three chapters together comprise the theological introduction of this entire book, that you have to know something about this in order to understand the prophecies in chapter four through 14. And people have wondered, is it the same person in chapter one that's the wife in chapter two? That's the woman in chapter three, because they're all, they've got sort of different qualities about them. Further, people have asked, does Hosea know that Gomer is a woman of harlotry, which is another way to um, translate this, prior to marrying her, or does he find out later and then turn the whole thing into a sign act? And I think most people do this because they don't want God to ask Hosea to go marry a woman of this sort of reputation. Okay. Another question that people have asked is what is meant by a woman of harlotry? And we'll look at that in a little bit more detail in a moment. And then finally, is this story real? Did it happen? Is it just allegory? Is this just a vision that Hosea has or a dream that Hosea has? There's nothing in the text to suggest anything other than this is a piece of history that is being acted out for the people as a prophetic sign act. In light of all of this, James Luther Mays says, modern questions such as the ones we've just been looking at, modern questions formed out of legitimate curiosity about 
just what happened are frustrated and will never be answered with final certainty because the data are missing. We do not know the answers to these questions. We can hypothesize, we can come to some pretty good conclusions, but at the end of the day, there are some questions that are going to be unanswerable for us. But let's dive in, let's look at a couple of things in this passage and just uh, set some things into context. The, the very first um, message from the Lord, and most people would say that this is framed by the beginning when the, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea. The first thing that sets this off is the command for him to go and marry a prostitute, it says, and have children of prostitution. This translation is not necessarily the best because we all have certain ideas of what connotes a prostitute, one who stands at the corner and exchanges money for certain goods. That's not necessarily what's happening here. There were words Words for that in the Old Testament, and these are not the words that are being used in this passage. In fact, um, where it says, you don't know this, but just listen, it says, Ashet uh, Zenunim, that Zenunim there is a plural, and it's an abstract plural, and people would say it has nothing to do with actions, it has something to do with the quality of character of this woman. It's not the fact that she's a prostitute, it's the fact that she's like a prostitute. It's the fact that she has very questionable sexual ethics, perhaps, and people have begun to try to understand what this actually means, and they've come up with a few ideas. So when God is asking Hosea to go marry this woman, is God just asking Hosea to go out into the lot of the people of Israel and find a woman who is known to be sexually promiscuous, to find her and then to bring her home with him as his wife? That's one option. Another option would be, is it possible that he would go and marry someone who would become an unfaithful wife later? This is the same idea as him looking back and saying, this has happened and now this must be what the Lord has asked me to do. He marries someone because he falls in love with her and doesn't necessarily know how it's going to turn out as no one really does when they get married. And then this kind of difficult moment happens in their marriage. It's an atrocious uh, sin on the marriage of struggling for words there. Um, but is, is he being asked to go marry marry someone who would become an unfaithful wife unbeknownst to him. A lot of people would actually say that what's happening in this moment in the eighth century of Israel, what the people were all about is they were so busy following Baal. They were so busy following the foreign gods that they were starting to adopt foreign pagan practices, one of which has to do with a fertility cult where women would um, offer themselves to sexual acts of other people in order to become fertile, to have kids of their own, much like at the time people believed that Baal was the one who impregnated the ground and allowed uh, plants and vegetation to grow. People within Israel at this time ostensibly were going about these sorts of cultic acts, and some people are wondering if Gomer had this um, moment in her life where she offers herself to Baal in this way. One scholar says it could have happened once. It could have happened a couple times. It could have happened a handful of times. Nobody quite knows, but there is this underlying current of this fertility cult at this moment. And other people have said, you know, forget all that sexual stuff. What this really has to do with is the image that is being portrayed here. Hosea, go marry um, a questionable woman because Israel is questionable in their commitments to me. In other words, they would say he could have picked any 
person in Israel at the time because any person in Israel at the time was going after other gods and demonstrating themselves to be unfaithful to Yahweh or to Israel's God. It had nothing to do with the fact that she's offering herself in a fertility cult. It had nothing to do with the fact that she would eventually cheat on him. It had nothing to do with the fact that she has been uh, sexually active prior to marriage. It had nothing to do with the fact that she was a prostitute. It just has to do with the fact that she is an Israelite who is following after other gods. At the end of the day, all of these options have something uh, beneficial to them. And as one scholar says, whatever the term harlotry indicates about Gomer's sexual history, it's a metaphor intended to indict Israel for breach of faith toward the Lord. It doesn't so much, this is going to hurt all of you who are real into Francine Rivers and you're real into redeeming love. Is that what it's called? I've got to tell you, I've been reading this book. This is a Christian romance book that is, that is it's excellent, actually. I really quite enjoy it. But every time I go to the coffee shop and I whip out my copy of Francine Rivers and I put it on the table and it's got like this sexy lady on the front. Like, I don't, it's just this weird sort of moment. And I feel like a real weird person reading this Christian romance. Like, oh no, it's okay. It's Christian. It's a retelling of Hosea. It's just mind your business. Okay. (laughs) Mind your business. But people that are, that are there with that, it um, might be going in a a different direction. According to the, the text here, it's not that she's a prostitute In fact, uh, what's happening in this text is it's just meant to indict Israel for a breach of faith toward the Lord. And however we deal with who she is and what she has done and where she has been, this is the point that cannot be overlooked in this passage. It doesn't so much matter which place you land as long as we get this. And isn't that kind of the freeing and fun thing about studying the Bible? There's issues where we can have freedom to disagree. There's issues where we can say, you know what? I actually think that Gomer was part of this fertility cult. And you know what? I think that she was a prostitute. And we can have that conversation. How many of you have had that conversation already? Okay. Just as I thought. Okay, here's, here's the real part. Like Hosea is hooking up with this woman who is meant, that relationship is meant to show that Israel is faithless toward God and they have these kids together. They have three, Jezreel, not compassion and not my people. And in the name lottery, you might think if I had to pick one of the three, which one am I going? Jezreel. But that's really because we have no idea what the context is. It still might be the best of the three, but it's not that good because for an ancient reader, what they would have heard immediately is a story back in Israel's past that was not looked upon very highly. In the text, it says, name him Jezreel, which is also a play on the word Israel. Uh, For in a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will destroy the kingdom of the house of Israel. There's a story in 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10 where Jehu has been um, empowered by Elisha the prophet to go and to completely obliterate the house of Ahab. This was a king that was not doing good things and Jehu is empowered to do this and he goes after the king of Israel and he also ends up killing the king of Judah in the same moment at a place named 
Jezreel. They keep sending out messengers to him, and it says that Jehu is driving his chariot like a madman, and he's going to, to kill these people. And the people that are looking on the towers, they say, the messengers went there, but they're not coming back. They're, they're being sucked into this, this rider, and they're all coming this way, and they keep sending out riders. And eventually, Jehu just draws a bow and kills the king of Israel, and then he chases the king of Judah and kills him as well. And now here we see in this passage, name your kid Jezreel. It would be similar to naming a kid today Wounded Knee or Hiroshima or Auschwitz or perhaps some play on the Twin Towers. It's a name that denotes a moment in Israel's history that is not good. For Jehu, what happens is in this story, he, he, he decimates the house of Ahab, but then he continues on and lives sinfully and leads the people in that negative way. And here, Hosea is saying, this house will come to an end. And not only that, I will destroy the entire kingdom of the house of Israel. God is not pleased with what is happening with his people. After this uh, takes place, it says uh, in a very quick succession, um, Hosea and Gomer have another child, and he says, name her no compassion, because I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel or forgive them. For an ancient reader, there is um, pregnant metaphors jumping off of the page here. Because the way that these words were working, it would have taken back people to one of the fundamental texts that they had. A text in Exodus chapter 34 where God reveals himself as Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, the same word therefore, not compassioned, rechum, a God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands of generation and forgiving iniquity. That word therefore, forgiving, is the same word that we see here in this passage where God is saying, you know how I used to be described you know how he used to be Yahweh, Yahweh, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love, one who is merciful and compassionate and forgiving, one who is all of these things. I'm not that person anymore. I have had it with the things that you are doing. I have had it with your faithlessness. I have had it with the way that you have been wronging me over and over in this very one-sided relationship. I used to describe myself in this way, but I will not describe myself in this way anymore. And the whole text comes to a climax in this last passage. It says that after not compassioned has been weaned. In the ancient world, this could have been anywhere from two to four to five-ish years. Um, so this, this, this whole uh, text where we only have nine verses, it might take up anywhere from three to seven years of Hosea's life. Those are pretty broad estimates. But he has this kid uh, and it says, name him, not my people, lo a me, because you are not my people and I am not your God. This is standard covenantal language. All throughout the Old Testament, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. But in this one line, he says, I will not be your God anymore and you will not be my people. In fact, as you're sitting at the table, his name is not my people. When he goes to school and hangs out with all the other people and they say, hey, not my people, they are all faced with this reminder that God is not on our side anymore. 
or at least in this prophetic sign act, this is what's happening. And what's very interesting about this, the same thing is, is coming to fruition. We go back to the um, to Exodus in this moment where God uh, is leading Moses out into the wilderness and he sees the bush that's on fire. And Moses says, what am I supposed to tell people that your name is? And it says in that passage in Exodus chapter three, the way that God reveals himself to Moses is, eh, yeah, asher, eh, yeah. And in this passage, he says, I am not your God. Another way you could translate that is, I am not eh yeah anymore. I will not be Yahweh for you anymore. I will not be I am for you anymore because of what you're doing and the way that you are going. I found this random picture of a family with two boys and a girl. Because in the midst of this, I know that we can't psychoanalyze the text and we can't go back and read things into this. But if you just take a moment, 30 seconds, 15 seconds even, to think about Gomer, to think about, and this is actually the beauty of Francine Rivers, to think about her story and what has brought her to this point and to think about those moments where they are all together, to think about the moment when Hosea is hanging out with Gomer, the Israelite who is wayward in whatever way that means, whether it was through the fertility cult, whether that was through her promiscuity, whether that was through um, just her being a rebellious, recalcitrant Israelite and having their kids here who are living out these sign acts. What in the world would that have been like? And I think that this is a bad tie, but it's a tie that's quite close to us in time. They are living embodiments of the message that God has for this people to say, I will no longer be merciful and gracious. I will no longer be quick to forgive. I will no longer be your God and you will not be my people. That is a difficult word. Certainly not a passage that any normal pastor would pick on a Mother's Day. However, throughout this, this chapter, there are hints that are laid out, and this is the tension that we see throughout the book of Hosea. Even in the verses that were read, there's this, there's this moment where God says, but for the house of Judah, I will be present. But for the house of Judah, I will be present. And Israel seems to get the shaft over and over until we see these verses as it continues on in Hosea 1 verse 10. It says, yet the number after all this stuff, not compassioned, not my people, I will no longer be, eh, yeah, I will no longer be Yahweh or I am for you. It says, yet the number of the people of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which can be neither measured nor numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be gathered together and they will choose one head. They will become fruitful in the land. The day will be a wonderful one for Jezreel. In the midst of judgment, there is hope. In the midst of this punishment, there is a silver lining out there somewhere where God cannot and will not leave his people high and dry. For all of the sinfulness that they bring to his feet, he cannot let them go. 
A text where it says, Yahweh, Yahweh, uh, gracious and merciful God with steadfast love and, and forgiveness. It goes on to say that he is keeping his steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. It goes on to say, but he is not one that lets sin go. I'm kind of um, paraphrasing here, but he, he will punish sin to the third and fourth generation. And what some scholars have said is there's a difference between the thousands of generations to which God will go and the lengths that God will go to forgive. The word there is used, it means to carry. He is carrying the sin that we bring to him for the sake of this relationship. And yes, there might be a punishment to three or four generations, but for thousands and thousands of generations, God is wanting to say, I will take all of your stuff and I will put it on my back and I will carry it so that we can be together. And even in the midst of Hosea living out this sign act, demonstrating that God is not particularly pleased with the people at this moment, there's a hint, there's an underlying current that says, I will be faithful to you and I will take the sin that you have and I will put it on my back because I love you and I do not want this to be destroyed. Even though you keep walking away, even though you keep going the opposite direction, even though you keep um, entertaining the fertility cults, if that's what's going on, or even though you keep going in the opposite direction or cheating on your spouse, I will not leave you. I cannot. And we see in this very first chapter of Hosea, this tension between the punishment that is coming for Israel, but for God to say, I will not let you go. When I said that I won't be Yahweh for you, it was just for a moment because I can't keep that from us. I can't keep that from you. When I said that you weren't my people, I didn't really mean it because I want you back and you will be my people and there will be redemption and there will be rescue for you. And I don't know where you have been or what you have been through, but I think that everyone in this room needs to hear that underlying current of hope that is offered for you specifically through Jesus Christ. Wherever you have been, whatever you have done, God has not written you out of the story, but he has offered you grace and he is wanting to bring you back to say, in the moment when you felt like you were not my people, I am screaming to you that you are my people. In the moment where you felt like I was not Yahweh to you or I was not I am to you or I was not God to you any longer, I want to be, I will be, I can be. I've done everything in order for that to happen. In the way that you felt that this relationship has been fractured, I've died. I've taken the worst that you've given me. I've put it on my back. I've put nails through it. And through it, I've said, I want to be with you. There's this underlying current in the book of Hosea of hope and a future, even in the midst of the tragedy. And for some of you in the room, you're in the tragedy. And I want to scream to you that there is hope. And for those of you that are experiencing hope or have experienced hope, it is my prayer that we can lock arms together to say that God will not leave us, to be present for people in the midst of whatever it is that we're going through, and hopefully to be a living embodiment, not of one who is not my people, but to be a living embodiment or a prophetic sign act where we are the people of God collectively, where we can live that out and provide people with a powerful image that is just as captivating as this music video that we keep going back to, where people will see the relationship that we have and the way that we have ordered our life and the things that we set our minds to, and they will see that as compelling and want to join us as we work for restoration and redemption here and now through Jesus and the power of his spirit.
My hope is that we can begin to move in that direction and that we can begin to move tonight. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.